Well, hey, good morning, River West Church. It's great to be with you again this morning. It is day 42 of quarantine. Can you believe that? It has been eight weeks since we've been together as a church family. If you would have told me eight weeks ago that we would still be in this situation after eight weeks, I would have told you, you are crazy. And yet, here we are, here we are. And, and so actually, I, I, I feel like the word that the Lord has given me this morning for our church is very timely for these days. Although when you, when you first hear what I've chosen to talk about today, you're gonna wonder, why, why would I pick this theme? Because today... What I want to talk to you about is the theme of joy. That's what I want to talk about this morning, joy. And not just any old joy, all right? Not just little joys, not just temporary joys. Have you heard somebody say yet, I'm just, I'm just looking for little joys in this quarantine. We're so desperate for joy, we'll find joy in just about Anything. I've heard people talk about finding joy in gardening, of all things. I've heard people talk about joy from having their teenagers around. Now, that, that's how desperate we are for joy. I've heard people talk about joy because they've unexpectedly found a roll of toilet paper in the back of the bathroom cabinet, all right? We're desperate for joy. But today, we need to talk about a very different kind of joy. Not a fleeting joy, not a temporary joy, not just a tiny little joy, No, the joy that we need to talk about this morning is the kind of joy that only a person who's been raised from the dead can offer us. That's what we're doing in this series that we're calling Abundant Life. Each week, we're looking at one of these blessings of the resurrection. And what I'm here to talk to you about today is a kind of joy that can only come from someone who's been raised from the dead. And Jesus made a promise to his disciples. The day before he was to be crucified, he made a promise to them about a joy that the world had never known before this moment. And it's that promise, it's that passage that I want to take you to this morning. And so would you grab your Bible and open with me to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you the story of the greatest moment of pure joy, I would argue, in the entire Bible. And it happens In John's gospel, just four chapters later, it's one of these resurrection appearance moments. It's a story about Peter, and it it explains the promise that we're about to read this morning. In this particular moment, the disciples had gone back to their hometown of Galilee. They were back in the region of Galilee, and they had decided to go fishing. Peter said, let's go fishing. So they went out on the lake. They're fishing. They hadn't caught anything. It was early in the morning, and suddenly they look up, and there's this strange person standing on the beach. They can't recognize him, and he calls out to them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Does that sound familiar? 
It had happened already before earlier on in their, in their time with Jesus. So they cast the nets on the other side of the boat and they haul in such a load of fish that the boat begins to sink. And John, the beloved disciple, he looks up and he cries out, it's the Lord. And then the moment of pure, unadulterated joy. Peter, you gotta love Peter. Peter, he sees the Lord Jesus on the beach and in a moment of thoughtless joy, he grabs his outer garment, a heavy outer garment. He wraps it around himself and he throws himself into the sea. You gotta love Peter. He was just so overwhelmed with joy. The disciples row the boat in. They probably even made it back to shore before Peter did, but it doesn't matter because he was so overjoyed to see the Lord. And the question that I've been thinking about is, what caused that kind of joy? And I think it was Peter remembering this promise that Jesus had made. We look at it with me, John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. Here's what Jesus said to the disciples on the night before he was crucified. He said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And it's this odd passage. It's totally repetitive. Okay, here's what's happening. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what is about to happen. It's Thursday evening. It's the day before his crucifixion. And he knows it's going to get super gnarly. He's going to be put on trial. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be abused. He's going to be nailed to a cross. He knows the disciples are about to go on a roller coaster of emotion. And he's trying to prepare them. You, you, you guys, you don't understand what's about to happen, but it is about to go down. And so he says to them, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament in just a little while. You will be weeping and lamenting. It's so hard for you to imagine this because right now things are fine. I'm with you, but in just a little while, you're gonna experience unbelievable sorrow. He says, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I love that phrase. Can I say that again? You will see me and your hearts will rejoice. And Jesus says, no one will be able to take that joy from you. Oh, friends, if there's one thing I wanna leave you with 
today, when we're done with our little moment together, I want those words ringing in your ears, clanking around in your heart. No one will be able to take away this joy. Astounding promise. Amazing. Can you believe Jesus claims this? You know, if you think about it, there are very, very few things in your life right now that can't be taken from you, right? Almost everything in your life can be taken away from you. Your health can be taken away from you. Your job can be taken away from you. Close relationships, people, loved ones can be taken from you. Your sanity can be taken from you. Your security can be taken from you. Your community, your very life can be taken from you, but not this joy. This, this special kind of joy that I feel like we need to focus on this morning, this joy, it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be lost. No one can take it from you. It's irrevocable. You say, pastor, what does irrevocable mean? It means no one can take it from you. No one, never. It is sure, it's firm, it's solid, it's certain, even if everything else around your soul gives way, this joy will not. So beautiful. And today I have one single goal, and my goal is to stir up that joy in you again. Has it become dormant? It's in there, I know it. But my goal is to stir you up. My goal is to draw it back up to the surface. My goal is that you'll feel it and savor it and rejoice in it and begin to share it again. And the way I'm gonna do that this morning, super simple, I'm gonna point out three insights that I made this week from this passage that I think stir up joy. Just three, three observations and then at the end, I'm going to give you something super practical that I want you to do. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about our moment that we're in, our cultural moment, and why the world needs this joy more than ever before. So we look back at the text. Here's insight number one. It's, it's an insight about this analogy that Jesus uses of a mother giving birth. Super interesting. Look at it again. Verse 21, Jesus said, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. This is brilliant. Jesus is saying, just think about that moment. That moment when after, after a woman has delivered the baby and they lay that precious bundle, that human burrito, they lay that baby on the mother's chest, that moment of pure 100% joy. It's all the anguish. You can't even remember. It's this dramatic turn from anguish and suffering and pain to a joy that's so powerful, you can't even remember the anguish. Jesus says, think of that moment. And of course, the point is not just to think about it. The point is for the readers to feel that joy, feel that turn. Kathy and I, we had some pretty dramatic deliveries of both of our daughters. Well, I, well technically, 
Kathy had a dramatic delivery. I contributed very little to the delivery part. In fact, about the only thing I contributed was I complicated both of our deliveries, all right? Um, I, someday I'm going to write a book titled, What Not to Do While Your Wife is Giving Birth to a Baby. But that's another story. But when we, when we gave birth to Bridget, all right, I really complicated the process because we, we left the house way too late. So in a panic, we're driving to the hospital, and Kathy is extremely dilated. And so I'm worrying about her. I mean, she's going to give birth to this baby a lot sooner than we realized. So I'm flying towards the hospital, and in a panic, I parked on the opposite end of the hospital, like four blocks away from the delivery ward. So there we are. We're walking through the hospital, walking over sky bridges. We get about halfway to the delivery ward, and Kathy is laboring so intensely that we have to stop in the middle of a sky bridge. She's bent over, laboring, and a nurse walks up and says, oh my gosh, you are going to have a baby any moment. And then she looked at me like I was a serial killer. <laughs> like, what are you doing in the middle of a, of a breezeway? And so we, we made it to the delivery room and Bridget was born like 30 minutes later. And I'll never forget that moment when they laid Bridget on Kathy's chest, that bundle of joy. Okay. And all of the anguish, all of the sorrow, it was a distant memory. We were so filled with joy. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, my friends, we're about to go through something just like this. We're about to go through something very much like giving birth to a baby. It's the perfect analogy so in a sense, there's going to be anguish. It's pain, a very painful loss is going to occur. It's, it's like a childbirth. So in a sense, that baby has been close to its mother, warm and secure and comfortable in the mother's womb. And in a sense, the mother feels very connected to her baby. But of course, the baby can't stay there. And in order to really have that baby as a person in the world, in order to really know that baby and be connected to that baby, a painful loss has to occur. There has to be some anguish, a tearing. It's often violent and even, even bloody. And of course, Jesus is talking about the cross. He's saying, right now, you sort of have me in the world, but in order to really have me, we have to go through a process of anguish that's very much like a, like a delivery where you're going to see me suffer. There's going to be anguish. There's going to be sorrow. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be violent. There's going to be a tearing. There will be weeping. There will be lamenting. And there will be sorrow. But that sorrow will make the most dramatic turn to joy. And Jesus says, I want you to feel it. He says, it's like a child. He uses the childbirth analogy because he says, I want you to remember that joy. I wish I could have been there and seen the look on Peter's face right as he was about to throw himself into the ocean to see that look of joy. And I think this is recorded for the reader because, because Jesus is saying that experience of joy, every person who gets saved 
has that experience of joy. The moment you get reunited with the risen Lord, you erupt with joy. You know, David, remember when David said in Psalm 51, he said to the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I think David was saying, sometimes that joy, it can get buried. It can get buried underneath layers of guilt or spiritual neglect or all kinds of things can sort of cover over that joy. And I think what my goal today is to peel some of those layers away and, and, and let that joy rise to the surface again. And Jesus says, think, think of that moment when the baby is in the world. That's a great picture of that feeling of joy. So that's insight number one. My second insight is about this really odd, almost side comment that Jesus makes about the world and what causes the world to rejoice. And he makes it so quickly, it's such a passing comment, I bet that you did not even notice it. I certainly didn't notice it as I read through the passage many times this week. I read over it several times and then suddenly, one time as I'm reading the passage, it just popped off the page this comment about the world rejoicing. Will you look at it with me? Verse 20, here's what Jesus said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and look at this, but the world will rejoice. Huh? He says to the disciples, in that moment, you're gonna be weeping and lamenting, but but there will be, there will be this, this, this thing, the world, Jesus says, will be rejoicing. What in the world is going on here? Jesus is creating this massive contrast. Okay, so imagine it's Saturday. It's the day after Good Friday. It's the day before Easter Sunday, all right? And, and there's this massive contrast happening between the disciples of Jesus and the world and what causes them joy. So there you are, it's Saturday and you gotta get yourself into the room. Try to get into the room where the disciples are. Just imagine what would it have been like on Saturday? They just watched their leader, their rabbi, their friend be tortured, brutally humiliated, nails hammered through his hands and his feet, suffering. He died, laid in a tomb, and now it's Saturday and they've gathered in a room. Get in the room, look around the room, look at their faces, red eyes from weeping, swollen cheeks from lamenting. They're heartbroken, trauma, confusion, shock. They're overwhelmed with sorrow. But then Jesus says, but now wait a minute. Now go outside of that room and go into the world. It's the Greek word cosmos, all right? Go into, go into the world, go into the cosmos. It's not, he's not talking about the universe. That word, when John uses that word, he's always talking about the created order, especially human beings and human affairs who are actively in rebellion against their maker, 
So inside the room where the disciples are, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're lamenting, but then go out into the cosmos and this is the single greatest day ever. The world, the cosmos is rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus is in a tomb. What a contrast. The agenda of the world is precisely the opposite of Christ's agenda. So so the world, they finally got rid of Jesus and they're actually rejoicing. This is just astounding to me. His departure, while, while a cause of great sorrow for the disciples, is a cause of joy for the world. But then, but now think about this. The opposite is also true. His return in victory, when he's raised from the dead, will be the single greatest cause of joy for his disciples. And it will be a cause of dread for the world for the world in rebellion against God. Very same reality with two completely different effects. And what's the point? I think the point is this. I think the point is to draw our attention to just how unique resurrection joy is. Friends, the joy that we have because Jesus has been raised from the dead is completely unique. There's nothing else like it in the world. In fact, the world, all the, all the joys that the world has to offer, they're just cheap knockoffs. They're counterfeits. That's why I think Jesus says the world rejoices when Jesus is in a tomb. Because as long as Jesus is in the tomb, the world can keep people occupied with counterfeit joys, counterfeit knockoffs. But the presence of Jesus calls the bluff on the counterfeit joys of this world. The last thing the world wants is for a risen savior to walk out of the grave and expose how cheap and counterfeit and temporary and fleeting all of these useless worldly joys truly are. They'll never, ever fill you. Never. It reminds me of the way that C.S. Lewis described his salvation. He wrote a book, it's his autobiography. It's an entire book devoted to telling the story of how he came to Christ. And you know what he titled that autobiography? He titled it, Surprised by Joy. I love that title, Surprised by Joy. For for Lewis, when he thought of his journey from not being a Christian to being a Christian, joy was at the center of it. And in the introduction, he... In the very first chapter, he describes these different childhood experiences, three of them that that he vaguely remembers that that these experiences that tapped into a longing, this deep longing for something that he he didn't even know what it was, but just the experience of the longing caused him to realize there's got to be something more than just this physical, material, temporary world. Here's what he writes. He writes... The reader who finds these three episodes of no interest need read this book no further. For in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. But for those who are still disposed to proceed, I will only underline the quality common to the three experiences. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. 
I love that phrase. He says, it's that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. And C.S. Lewis says, I call it joy. I call it joy. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. I think C.S. Lewis was onto something. We were created to be to be filled, to finally experience joy, but to only experience it from one place, from Jesus, the risen Lord. And this is why the world rejoices when Jesus is in a tomb. And this is why the world laments and disciples rejoice when Jesus rises again. Finally, pure joy. So great. So that's my second observation. And then finally, my third observation brings us right back to the beginning of the message. The third insight that I want to share with you is about this bold promise that Jesus makes in verse 22. We look back at it with me. Verse 22, he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. I think what he's referring there, he's referring to his resurrection. That happened. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he sought them out. He went after, he appeared to them multiple times. He appeared to them in the room with, when Thomas wasn't there. He appeared to them multiple times. He appeared to Peter on the beach. Jesus said, I will see you again, right? And he says, and your hearts will rejoice. And that happened. Their hearts rejoiced. When, when Jesus showed up that first time in the room behind locked doors, John tells us they rejoiced. He said they were glad, which in the Greek, it's this word. Their hearts rejoiced. And then Jesus says, and no one will take your joy from you. This beautiful promise. This beautiful promise. No one will take your joy from you. Again, this is, This joy, it's caused by the resurrection. It's not like any other kind of joy. It can't be stolen. It can't be destroyed. It can't be snuffed out. No one will ever take it from you. Brothers and sisters, the joy that you have in Jesus will never be stolen from you. No one can take it from you. No thing can take it from you. The coronavirus can't take it from you. Quarantine can't take it from you. Social distancing can't take it from you. No matter what you have lost, no one can steal your joy. And why? Because this is resurrection joy. I think what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying the reason no one will ever be able to take your joy is because I have been raised from the dead and I will never die again. I will never be taken from you ever again. So no one can take your joy because you'll have me. But also Jesus is saying, not only will will I live forever, but because I've been raised from the dead, you know who else will live forever? Never to be taken again. You will live forever. Because I've been raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead and you will never die again spiritually. Remember what Jesus said, John 14, 19, he said, because I live, you also will live. 
or that amazing resurrection verse, John 11, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying the reason, the reason no one will ever be able to take your joy is because I will live and never die again and you will live and never die again. And finally, we are reunited for all eternity and no one will ever be able to rob that from you. And so, friends, if ultimately, if your joy is in anything other than Jesus, if it comes from anything or anyone else in this world, I have to be honest with you and say, eventually that joy will be taken from you. If your ultimate source of joy comes from anything other than Jesus, the risen Lord, it's temporary, it's fleeting. And I guarantee you a day is coming when it will be taken from you. But if your joy comes from being with Jesus, the risen Lord, no one will ever take it from you. That is a promise. And this morning, I'm asking you to believe that with all of your heart. You have been united in faith with Jesus, the risen Lord, the source of true joy. Believe that, celebrate that, revel in that today. And so what I want to do here to close is I want to speak from the bottom of my heart and I want to call our church to something. Uh, what, I, what I need to do is I, I need to connect the dots now between the joy that we've been talking about and this moment that we're in, in our world, in our culture, and it, because it's, it's an extremely odd moment. And all week long, here's what I have been thinking. I've been thinking one thing. We are in a spiritual battle right now, friends. We're in a battle. And you know what it's a battle for? It's a battle for people's joy. All across the land, even, even in the church, our spiritual enemy is trying to rob people of joy. And it's a battle. And I know you know this because you've probably heard the stories of people's struggles right now. And here's, here's the thing. Your joy, that resurrection joy that you have, that is like God's secret weapon in this world because your joy is so contagious. Now, maybe contagious is not the best analogy to use, but your joy is so contagious. It's so inexplicable because it comes from something that's otherworldly. It's outside of this world. And people need to see your joy right now. They need to see a source of joy that's permanent, that can never be taken. They need to see a source of joy that cannot be explained by anything in this world because so much of what's happening in our world right now is robbing people of joy. And so God wants to use you. He wants to use you. And my call to you, River West Church, is I want you to begin to pray today and I want you to make a decision. I am going to find ways to share my joy with people in my world, in my neighborhood. I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call that friend that I've been thinking about that I haven't heard from. I'm going to walk across the street and I'm going to reach out to my neighbor and I'm going to pray, Lord, would you allow my joy, my, my, the joy that I have in Christ to shine 
And it's not just people outside of the church. It's even people within the church are struggling. You know, experts are starting to talk about something called technology fatigue. You probably heard about this. People are becoming fatigued even just by having to do everything through technology, through Zoom, being online. So they're starting to actually tune out. I was, I was with a, a forum of pastors this week, and, and, and they were talking about the fact that alcohol sales are on the rise. Pornography use is on the rise. By the way, have you thought about this? Why is it that alcohol, liquor stores, and recreational marijuana dispensaries are necessary businesses, but the coffee shop is closed. Can someone explain that to me? What is going on? Alcohol consumption is on the rise. Marijuana use is on the rise. Pornography use is on the rise. Binge watching is on the rise. And the one thing that's not on the rise anymore, that's actually going down in the church is people tuning in to online experiences of worship and devotion. We're in a spiritual battle, folks. People are, are, they're not tuning in anymore. And why? Because they have technology fatigue. And here's the problem with that. Those people who have technology fatigue, they're not hearing this right now because they have technology fatigue. And that means it's incumbent upon you to let your joy shine that brother or sister who has tuned out, I'm asking you to reach out to them and encourage them. Don't give up. You need to worship. This week, I picked up the phone. I called a brother in our church that I hadn't heard from in a while. I was a little worried about him. I called him up. We were talking. And as I suspected, he was really struggling. And I listened for a while. And I asked him, you know, brother, have you been, have you been worshiping online? Have you been, have you been watching the sermons? Have you been checking out the devos? And, and he admitted, no, I always, I always intend to do it, but I never quite get to it. But I know he's binge watching, you know, Tiger King or whatever. And I just exhorted him. I said, you were created to worship. You need to tune in and worship. And my friends, you have brothers and sisters in Christ in your circle of influence and they have tuned out because they're fatigued. And you know what's happening? Their joy is waning. And I'm calling you to reach out, love on them, share your joy. Let's let our joy shine in this world. It's inexplicable. It's contagious. And it always brings glory back to Jesus, the risen Lord. Amen. I'm going to pray about that right now, and then we'll worship together. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, how we thank you for this reminder today from John 16, this promise, this astounding promise of a kind of joy that before this moment the world had never known, a joy that can only be offered by someone who's been raised from the dead. Resurrection joy, abundant joy, a joy that can never be taken from us. And so we thank you for it. We rejoice in it. God, would you stir us up? Would you stir up that joy in us? May we feel it again. And God, may it become so contagious. I pray, Lord Jesus, 
that everyone who's under the sound of my voice, they would let their joy shine. They would share it in their world, with their friends, with their neighbors, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for it, Lord. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Let's worship together. And of course, if you'd like to give today as an act of worship, you can find instructions for ways to give online in our happenings. Go to our webpage. God bless you, River West. Love you.